again with another podcast. The last two podcasts featured a full album of 78s of Gilbert and Sullivan, and this and the next podcast feature another album, released in 1949 by Oriole Records, The Sounds of Time. It was described on the cover as a dramatisation in sound of the years 1934 to 1949, told in the voices that made history and illustrated by the great events that are part of it. The album consisted of five 12-inch shellac 78s and was later reissued as a vinyl album in the late 50s. It's an interesting document of how then-recent history was seen in 1949. I won't comment on its content or presentation, but suffice to say, if a similar album was compiled today, it could well have different emphasis and content. Side one is called The Wasted Years and features in Washington, President Truman hails the North Atlantic Pact, flashback to H.G. Wells' prophecy in 1934, the world is drifting towards catastrophe, Prime Ministers Ramsay MacDonald and Stanley Baldwin in pursuit of peace, the Italian dictator Mussolini glorifying war, King George V broadcasts an historic prayer from Britain's Parliament, the voice of Amelia Earhart, martyr to aviation, and the giant airship Hindenburg bursts into flames at Lakehurst, New Jersey, May the 6th, 1937. These are the voices and sounds of history. When the world was young, men depicted the story of their conflicts and triumphs on the walls of caves. Later came the printed word. Now we bring you a chronicle of sound, a sound history of our time. Washington, April 1949, and the voice of Harry S. Truman, President of the United States of America. In this treaty, we seek to establish freedom from aggression and from the use of force in the North Atlantic community. In Washington, the foreign ministers of 12 free nations were signing the North Atlantic Pact. It is a simple document, but it, if it had have existed in 1914 and in 1939, I believe it would have prevented the acts of aggression which led to two world wars. If it had existed then. Come back to London. On an evening in January 1934, and to the voice of H.G. Wells, prophet of the atomic age, prophet of things to come. A sort of spasm of nationalism has contracted men's minds. The answer to whither Britain amounts practically to this, drifting with the rest of mankind towards catastrophe. To the helm of that drifting ship came first a Scotsman, Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald. This is the supreme need of the time. MacDonald flirted with peace. In 1935, his successor, Stanley Baldwin, pursued her with heavy English platitudes. We shall persist in our attempts to promote peace 
and disarmament. And I believe that ultimately we shall succeed. That same year, Britain's well-loved monarch, George V, celebrated the 25th year of his reign and voiced his people's hopes in the first broadcast ever made from Britain's parliament. And I pray that we may continue to pursue the cause of freedom and progress in a spirit of peace, tolerance, and understanding. But while the leaders of democracy talked peace, the dictators of Germany and Italy prepared for war. In 1935, Benito Mussolini mobilized his misguided nation for a savage assault on Abyssinia. Aviation was making new conquests of space and time. Years later, men were to curse and bless the achievements of flyers such as Wiley Post, Amy Johnson, and Amelia Earhart. My flying was done entirely in the cockpit. That is, I depended on instruments alone to tell me the position of my plane in space. In 1937, the dirigible Hindenburg crossed the Atlantic in less than 48 hours. As the massive airship loomed over its mooring post at Lakehurst, New Jersey, Men's faith in these crafts seemed to be vindicated. Then, in a split second, came disaster. Listen now to one of the most dramatic records in the history of sound. American radio commentator Herb Morrison is watching the Hindenburg's arrival. It's starting to rain again. It, the rain had uh, slacked up a little bit. They backed motors of the ship are just holding it uh, just enough to keep it from... It burst into flames. Keep... That was side one. Side two is called Prelude to War and features King Edward VIII abdicates for the woman that I love. Austria is annexed by Hitler, speech and acclamation. Turning from Munich, Britain's Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain brings an assurance of peace with Germany. Liberating Nazis march into the Sudetenland. September the 1st, 1939, Poland invaded by Germany. Neville Chamberlain's broadcast of September the 3rd, 1939. And London hears its first air raid alert. December the 11th, 1936. And the culmination of a tremendous human drama. At, at long last, I am able to say a few words of my own. A young bachelor king, Edward VIII, is making his choice between personal happiness and an empire's crown. But you must believe me when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility 
and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. And so, for the second time in a year, from the ancient palace of St. James, a new monarch was proclaimed. George the sixth, by the grace of God, of Great Britain and Ireland, and the British dominions beyond the seas, king, defender of the faith, emperor of India. An empire's crisis had passed, but now a graver crisis threatened the civilized world. Abyssinia had followed Manchuria as a hostage to appeasement. The Rhineland and unhappy Spain were new milestones marking the retreat of the divided democracies from the principles of the League Covenant. And now it was Austria's turn to be engulfed by a ruler inflamed by dreams of world power. Speaking in his birthplace, Linz, Adolf Hitler declared that he had now fulfilled his divine mission to return Austria to Germany. Blinkered by apathy and bridled by caution, the democracies plodded through the years of crisis while the Berlin-Rome axis was being forged and tempered for war. In 1938, Hitler decided that the oppressed Germans living in Czechoslovakia's Sudeten territory must be liberated and massed his troops on the frontier. While the Czechs stood firm, Neville Chamberlain flew first to Berchtesgaden, then to Gerdesberg, then Munich, to seek an accommodation with Hitler. On September the 30th, anxious crowd waited to greet him at Heston Airport. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. The next day, Hitler marched, and the Sudetenland trembled under the robot tramp of Nazi jackboots. Chamberlain and Deladier were debating how the map of Europe should be redrawn. Hitler was redrawing it. A year later, on September the 1st, 1939, Poland's western frontier was rubbed out. Now Britain awoke. An ultimatum was sent at once to the ruler of the Reich. Unless he undertook to withdraw from Poland by 11 a.m. on September the 3rd, a state of war would exist between Britain and Germany. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. It was summer and it was Sunday. For a few minutes after Chamberlain had spoken, a great quietness settled on the land. Then...
Side 3 is called Britain Stands Alone and features gas mask training for schoolchildren during the phony war, Low Countries Invaded May 10th 1940, Singing Tommy's Cross Belgian Frontier, Three weeks later, J.B. Priestley broadcasts his famous postscript to the epic of Dunkirk, the good ship Gracie Fields. Enslaved Europe hears the voices of her leaders in London, and Winston Churchill rallies the nation. Children in their schoolrooms, women in their homes. None was to be spared the horror of total war. I want you to get your missing out and settle down comfortably at your desks. And then I want to see just how long you can sit there with your gas masks on. And when you're quite quiet, I'm going to read your story. But for eight months, all was quiet. It was the phony war. Then suddenly, on May the 10th, 1940, the Nazi High Command released its panzer columns and mobile infantry on neutral Belgium and Holland in a swift thrust towards the undefended frontiers of France. That night, British troops crossed the frontier to meet the Wehrmacht. Three weeks later, the dazed and battered remnants of a gallant army had been swept to the sea. And across the channel in Britain, a nation prayed for deliverance. Then came the epic of Dunkirk. Units of the home fleet wrote a new and magnificent chapter in naval history. But the real miracle was provided by that great armada of little ships, pleasure boats, paddle steamers, river craft, to which J.B. Priestley paid a grateful nation's tribute. Among those paddle steamers that will never return was one that I knew well, for it was the pride of our ferry service to the Isle of Wight none other than the good ship Gracie Fields. She has paddled and churned away forever. But now, look, this little steamer, like all her brave and battered sisters, is immortal. She'll go sailing proudly down the years in the epic of Dunkirk. And our great-grandchildren, when they learn how we began this war by snatching glory out of defeat and then swept on to victory, may also learn how the little holiday steamers made an excursion to hell and came back glorious. Now Britain stood alone, but with the knowledge that a great empire and commonwealth was ranged alongside her. And from London, nations upon whom the Nazi tyranny had been camped heard and were comforted by the voices of their leaders in exile. Benesh of Czechoslovakia. Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands. King Hawken of Norway. King Peter of Yugoslavia. Tchaikovsky of Poland. Rodacy. And the voice of General de Gaulle. J'invite les chefs, les soldats, les marins, les aviateurs. And in this dark hour, 
Britain, too, found a voice. A voice to express her determination to stand firm. Let us, therefore, brace ourselves to our duty. So bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Side 4 is called The Lion Has Wings and features RAF Spitfires and Hurricanes fight and win the Battle of Britain, Luftwaffe's Night Blitz on London, Spirit of the Cockney expressed by cab driver Harry Anderson, two Americans Ben Lyon and B.B. Daniels and the role of Tommy Handley bring good cheer to embattled London through the High Gang and ITMA radio programmes and the voice of Colonel Britain is heard by the resistance movement in underground Europe. It is September 1940, and the fields and gardens of Kent are bathed in golden sunshine. But up there, with the blue autumn sky as their arena, Hurricanes and Spitfires of the RAF gave battle to Goering's vaunted Luftwaffe. Through weeks which held the breathless attention of the whole world, the immortal few fought the Battle of Britain from dawn to dusk. They saved Britain from invasion when she was weak, and by saving her, they saved humanity. But now, under cover of the long winter nights, a new ordeal began. An ordeal by fire, by bomb. If you lived in Britain then, you will remember this sound. Out of the heavens, hell came to London. The lethal cargoes were unloaded and the bombers droned back into the dawn. And always over the ruins and tears left behind, the cheerful, irrepressible Cockney spirit of the Londoner reasserted itself. The story of one such Londoner was recorded by another one, cab driver Harry Anderson. It was early morning and the bombers had gone. And then in the silence of a British city, Harry heard a woman singing. He found her surrounded by rubble and broken glass, cleaning her front doorstep. She was well on the stout side and she looked as if she'd been the mother of about eight or nine kids. She looked the sort who wouldn't leave her house unless she was carried out feet first. You know, as if she'd been born in that district and had all her children there and was determined to stay there, Hitler or no Hitler. And was also quite determined to clean the front door step. Now I thought to myself, that's the sort of person you can't beat. And then she turned round and she saw me. Now I thought I'm going to hear something. I'll bet she's going to tell me whether Hitler's mother and father were married. But what she said was, You ain't seen my bleeding milkman round, have you? In their darkest hour, the British people sought laughter and good fellowship. The BBC brought it to them through the weekly high gang programme of two Americans, B.B. Daniels and Ben Lyon. High gang! High gang! <laughs> Welcome once again to your own High Gang show, coming to you as always from the heart of London, starring B.B. Daniels, Vic Oliver, and Ben Lyon. That's me, folks. 
and the best-loved radio personality of all time, the late Tommy Handler. Well, now, if I make this show a success, it'll be a great boost all round. Great juice all round, sir? Count me out. Hello, Colonel. How are you? But to the members of the underground movements in Europe, the BBC brought a personality of another kind, Colonel Britton. Millions on the continent knew his voice. You wear no uniforms, and your weapons are different from ours. But they're not less deadly. The fact that you wear no uniforms is your strength. The Nazi official and the German soldier don't know you. But they fear you. And to these millions was given a new symbol of faith in ultimate liberation. The knight is your friend. The V is your sign. Side 5 is called New World Rallies to the Old. The Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor brings America into the war and Franklin D. Roosevelt declares his faith in victory. General Douglas MacArthur at Melbourne, March 21, 1942. British war workers sing at the production front. A nightingale in a Surrey wood matches its voice against the drone of a thousand bombers striking at Germany. Intercom conversation by bomber crew over Berlin. And General Montgomery's private speech to 8th Army officers before El Alamein. The fall of France, the Battle of Britain, the passing by the United States Congress of the Lend-Lease Act, these were the first three climacterics of the war. The fourth came at 4 a.m. on June the 22nd, 1941, when Hitler invaded the Soviet Union. Now Britain had a tough fighting ally in Europe. Six months later, America reeled under the shock of Japanese treachery at Pearl Harbor then flexed its mighty sinews for total war. Before Congress, Franklin Delano Roosevelt pledged his faith in a victory that he never lived to see. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Now it was global war. Swept from Malaya, Burma and the Pacific Islands by the first fierce tidal wave of Japanese militarism, the democracies regrouped their land, sea and air forces, while the great arsenal of America forged and sharpened the weapons of retribution. And on March the 21st, 1942, a new comradeship in arms was declared at Spencer Street Station, Melbourne, by General Douglas MacArthur. I am glad indeed to be an immediate cooperation with the Australian soldier. I know him well from World War days and admire him greatly. On the other side of the world, in Britain, war workers on the production front sang with new heart at their benches and lathes. Wedding 
Deep in a Surrey wood one night, the BBC set up its microphone to capture the song of the nightingale. The engineer's vigilance was rewarded, and then a grim new meaning was given to the words of the Greek poet Callimachus. Thy nightingales live on, I hear them sing. E'en death spares them, who spares not anything. In the background is the sound of death. Death airborne by a thousand British bombers droning out to strike at the heart of Hitler's Reich. Listen now to a recording made inside a Lancaster bomber as it weaves over the German capital. Through the intercom, the crew is reporting its battle with a German night fighter. Where is he, uh, Red Gunner? Can you see him? Down! 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 It's chopped down! He's yeah, got down. down. Did you shoot him down? Yeah, yeah. yeah he's got him, boy. Right in the middle. Bloody good. But now, 2,000 miles to the south, Rommel stood with his Africa Corps at the gates of Cara, and famine threatened the besieged Mediterranean fortress of Malta. Suddenly, a new spirit swept through Britain's 8th Army. The officers caught it first when they assembled at Army headquarters on August the 13th, 1942, to hear their new commander, General Montgomery. Here we will stand and fight. There will be no further withdrawal. I have ordered that all plans and instructions dealing with further withdrawal are to be burnt. And at once. The great point to remember is that we are going to finish with this chap, Rommel, once and for all. It'll be quite easy. There's no doubt about it. He is definitely a nuisance. Therefore, we will hit him a crack and finish with him. That's side five of the Sounds of Time ending this podcast. Come back next time for side six to ten. Find me on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Until then, this is 78 Man saying goodbye and keep spinning that shellac. <laughs>